0: All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glem McDorman, and this is ATOS, your English Wizards versus Nazi X Men speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. So, surprise, an extra episode this month that you did not know was coming. And uh, this time we're going to be talking about Bitter Seeds by Ian Tregulis, the, the first in a series called The Milkweed Triptych. This one was published in 2010. But I am not alone today. Uh, Brandon Buddha from Elder
1: Sign and the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast
0: is here again. Welcome back to
1: ATOS, Brandon. I'm really excited to be here and talk about this book. I'm so glad you uh, kind of thrust this book upon me and said, uh, prepare for for Atos. Uh, uh, It was so much fun. And that means we have to thank our patron who commissioned this episode for us is so awesome. This is why we love getting these commission episodes. And the commission episodes are episodes that people say, hey, I love this. I want you guys to check it out and tell me your thoughts. They pay us to do it. um, And we read the book or the story and talk about it. And it's awesome. It's so much fun because it gives us the opportunity to read so many things that I think are probably typically outside either of our normal wheelhouse. Yeah, that's been so much of what the commissions that we get across the network
0: are. I mean, I've, I've been introduced to so many writers because of getting episode commissions, and this is really important for keeping the network going. So it is something that we're extraordinarily grateful to, to have every time we get one. Though in this case, we didn't charge anything for this episode because we actually gave it away as a prize uh, as part of the, the social media sharing contest that we ran for the network at the end of 2020. We also gave away some free nominations, and I can say now that both of those have been used to put some Poe and put some uh, George R.R. R. Martin on an upcoming Elder Sign Ballot, uh, uh, though all the Elder Sign Ballots these days, almost everything on them is nominated. And so there's some pretty stiff competition. Everything that's nominated is like a really great story <laughs> from here on out. So uh, we'll see how they fare, though, of course, we will get to them eventually, no matter what. Uh, so we do want to say a huge thanks to the supporter who commissioned this episode and to everyone who participated in that contest, everyone who helped spread the word about our shows on social media. And we did indeed see a bit of a bump in downloads across the network as a result of that. And we're so immensely grateful for all of that work that you guys in the audience did to help spread the word about us So let's go over the plan for this episode. It'd probably be a pretty big episode. I mean, it's a whole novel, right? And there are two of us. Uh, But we're going to start by going over the premise and the structure of the book. We'll give a little synopsis. Then we'll spend some time talking about the characters. After that, we'll talk themes and motifs. We'll do writing craft. We'll close it all out then with a segment on the strengths and the weaknesses of the book. But to kick it all off, uh, Brandon, I just want to know if you actually had any experience with Ian Tregulis before reading this book.
1: No, I had no experience with him whatsoever. I, there's so many either single novel or small trilogy writers in the, in the sci-fi world that um, I should say short trilogy rather than small that I just uh, have never gotten to. I mean, recently, like last year, I read a, a, a Werner Vinge novel for the first time called Rainbow's End. And I was like, I, I should be reading more of these Like sci-fi novels, but I have a backlog of other (laughs) literary novels that I'm trying to read. And then we read so much genre stuff for the podcast that this is such a treat for me to kind of pick up a a book and just sort of get lost in it. And I was really surprised with a lot of Tregellis's craft and writing and his skill. The I'll talk about this as we get into the episode, but the weight that he was able to apply to the seriousness of some of the darker aspects of the story, but even the magic and sci-fi systems that he's playing with really surprised me in a, in a positive way. Um, we talk about this as being like uh, Nazi X-Men versus uh, British wizards, uh, but it's far more serious than that. And I, and I'm really surprised as I've said uh, that tr- Tregillis was able to tonally, I think, succeed in communicating how serious this stuff is uh, in light of a war. I mean, this is a World War Two novel as well. So, uh, really enjoyed reading it. I didn't realize he was part of the kind of George R. 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 Martin crew of people who publish, you know, the ancillary stories that that George R. 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 Martin is a publisher and editor of. So that was cool to learn too. So I guess that about sums it up. Really enjoyed this introduction to Ian Tregulus and, and had never heard of him before we got this commission. And I'm super glad we did. Yeah, I had neither, and I am really
0: like you, very glad that we got this. This book was a, an amazing read. I just, I almost couldn't put it down. I read it in really about three and a half sittings. I guess probably uh, it was so much fun. I had just never heard of him or these books, and so really grateful. Uh, and uh, you know, there are two other books after this, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we're able to fit them into the schedule, <laughs> just sort of uh, of our of our own volition here. But I was glad to have the commission to serve as an impetus for us to do these. Let's get into the, the premise. Of of this book, but uh, maybe let's let's introduce ourselves slowly to that by uh, having you, Brandon, uh, read the uh, the description of this book. You know that the, the marketers have decided that well, those of us browsing in the bookstore should uh, should have. And this one, it's it's not in the back of the book. It's actually the inside flap that we have here.
1: Well, this is what the inside flap says. It's 1939. The Nazis have supermen. The British have demons. And one perfectly normal man is caught in between. Raybould Marsh is a British secret agent in the early days of the Second World War. During a mission back in the Spanish Civil War, he saw something strange. A German woman with wires going into her head. She looked at him as if she knew him. When the Nazis start running missions with people who have unnatural abilities... A woman who can turn invisible, a man who can walk through walls, and the woman from Spain who can use her knowledge of the future to twist the present. Marsh is the man who gets to handle the problem. He rallies the secret warlocks of Britain to hold the impending invasion at bay. But magic always exacts a price. Eventually, the sacrifice necessary to defeat the enemy will be as terrible as outright loss. Alan First meets Alan Moore in the opening of an epic of supernatural alternate history, the tale of a 20th century like ours, but also profoundly different. I
0: mean that is actually not a bad summary of of what this book is. It is definitely an alternate history of the the Second World War, and then the 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 next two volumes will continue that. We might speculate about that at the end. I mean we don't actually have to speculate. We could have read the other two books. We just didn't. But it'll be fun <laughs> to talk about what this book seems like it's setting up for us. Uh, I do also like that they say Nazi supermen rather than Nazi X Men, because of course X Men is uh, copyrighted and uh, right. uh, Superman is not. But these are clearly X Men. I mean, there's the description of the powers. On that uh, that inside uh, jacket description, there is is definitely something more akin to the X Men than to uh, a bunch of supermen. And as we will see, uh, these Nazi X Men—they're not actually mutants. Their superpowers are not entirely self-generated uh, in that way, but they are powers that these people ha- get as kids. They're they're at. School to to like learn about these powers, uh, to get them and to learn how to use them and and so on. And this is a school run by a Nazi scientist who has figured out how to train certain children to self generate a random and unique superpower by honing their will. Uh, We should be clear though that this training. It it seems largely to be abusive, Uh, but the other important factor is that the use of these powers, and and these are things right that we got on that that jacket, like walking through walls, super strength, invisibility, seeing the future, Uh, but these powers require the use of an external battery that has to get plugged directly into your brain. That's what the, the wires in that description are about. And the British wizards, on the other hand, are operating by making deals with uh, numinous creatures called Eidolons. Uh, In the story, Eidolons live between dimensions. They can't properly sense us. They can't properly sense humans or really maybe our, our world. But if they could, they would devour us and they would, in fact, destroy our reality. But they can shape our reality to their will when they want to and 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 when they're able to see it but getting them to want to requires paying them with human blood because you know they want to devour us and destroy our reality they like our blood uh, so that's the, the the premise here but let me give the the shortest possible synopsis and then we'll get into the the back and forth here about the characters of this story So this book is written in the the third person, but we actually are going to follow a cast of several different point of view characters, all of whom are either British intelligence operatives or Nazi X-Men. Uh, The story begins before the outbreak of the the Second World War. It begins in the Spanish Civil War, as you you read out loud, Brandon, and uh, then it covers the the entire Second World War, actually, uh, because this is the the first book in a series, we should say. Uh, And I'll talk more about how the Second World War is depicted and changed here in a a little bit. But uh, the point is that the British learn about the Nazi X-Men. They realize that they have to defeat them in order to win the war. Uh, And our story is about those efforts. And those efforts do eventually come to focus on the use of idolens by British wizards who use the idolens for things such as keeping the British Channel fogged over in order to prevent an invasion. Uh, they use them to teleport special operations troops behind enemy lines. They also use them to pin down German divisions with uh, magical blizzards, I guess. All of that, though, comes at a high price. And so they've also been having to sacrifice British citizens in order to pay the ever-increasing blood demands of the Eidolons. So we actually get some scenes of British intelligence operatives blowing up pubs and, and committing other awful crimes in order to, to make these blood sacrifices to get this magic to work. But in the end, the the British do succeed, but they they only do so by allying with the Soviets and using then the the Eidolons to help with an all out Soviet invasion of Germany, straight to Berlin. And the book ends with a new British Soviet alliance, as the Soviet Union has now occupied all of Europe and is you know setting up a a different Cold War uh, than the one that we got in our reality.
1: Yeah, that's a great synopsis of the story. And uh, it leaves, I think, certainly much to be explored by by listeners who haven't read it yet. Uh, I think that's right. There are a few things I would spoil, but I'm glad you didn't now upon reflection <laughs> if I were giving a synopsis of this. Uh, I, at the end of the day, though, what I really want to quibble with here in your synopsis is we keep on saying Nazi X-Men, but by the end of the novel, to me, they felt more like Nazi Fantastic Four, uh, just based on the powers and the kind of family dynamics that we were we were dealing with. But uh, I think that really really gives a good sense of, of what is going on in this story. It's also you know we get we're given multiple points of view as well, so it has that kind of George R R Martin flair of multiple perspectives in the time of war, and then also the cost that the war that the cost that is carried uh, of performing these actions on the characters is really well spelled out. So we're going to talk about characters here now. And then the first, the main character we got from the jacket, though, he's one of a few main characters we'll talk about here is Raybald Marsh. He's our action hero of the story. He's the spy. He's the one who's romantic love and home life give really deep personal stakes to, to the elements of the England plot. Um, he humanizes the fight in a book where so much of the damage is collateral and off page or only hinted at or whispered about. And Tregulus does, in my opinion, an excellent job of having Marsh represent the, the personal cost of war, but also... Giving us the sense that moving forward is possible. He really does this with two characters, I guess, even though, you know, by the end of the novel, uh, we know that really only tragedy can await Marsh, as one of the characters that we'll talk about next was forced to make an impossible deal with the Eidolons. And I guess then, maybe to me, Marsh really re- represents an ugly kind of optimism that. Is present in what kierkegaard uh, Soren Kierkegaard the the Danish philosopher would call the teleological suspension of the ethical and that 's where one is convinced that th- their actions, regardless of what they are, are good because they serve like a higher good, so like this is a, a quote unquote you know like just war novel on some level, uh, but I mean teleological suspension of the ethical is really a, a suspension of ethical norms in service of a higher calling. To act in a way that may violate ethical norms, I'm going to talk about that more later on. Um, but this sort of reasoning, if it can be called reasoning, is all over the novel, and and Marsh really embodies this. Um, his character flaws are his are his character flaws really that he's willing to violate these ethical norms to achieve a, a mission of personal vengeance rather than serving the higher good, and that that has consequences in the novel as well. But again, that's like kind of a major theme and motif. But to sum it up, Raybald Marsh, he's our action hero. He's our central figure here.
0: Right, and he's kind of uh, an, an everyman, right? We're supposed to empathize and sympathize with him, and, and really, I think, identify with him, especially, right? I don't know if we said this already, but Ian Tregillis is American, um, or at least he lives in America. I suppose that he might not necessarily be American, but he's a physicist who works in New Mexico and is part of, uh, and is how, that's how he's part of George R. R. Martin's uh, writing circle. There, I, I guess, but this Marsh feels very much like uh, someone who's being written for an American audience that you know resonates with John McClane, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh, So the other, because the other main character that we have on the British side is actually an aristocrat. This is uh, Will Beauclerk, who is Marsh's best friend. They both went to uni at Oxford together and despite their class differences, uh, became super best friends. But the real thing about Beauclerk or Will is that uh, he's a wizard, or at least is from a family of wizards. His uh, grandfather was a wizard and trained him to be a wizard, but it's something that he's not been into. His grandfather is dead now, and uh, Wilbo Clerk has not really followed in his footsteps and is really just busy in London being a dandy, which is a good job if you can get it. I mean, I definitely recommend it, <laughs> at least for a little while anyway. But it is his idea to use the Eidolans when, you know, Marsh tells him what, what's going on. It's his idea to use the Eidolans. And he becomes the POV character for also the the domestic terrorism and the murder that is required to pay the the Eidolans. And so he's a really compelling character, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I, Will is brought into this because he thinks that superpowers can only exist with the aid of these idolons, And so for him, he thinks, I'm just going to ask the Eidolons if they're doing something over there, basically. And then he finds out that they're not, but then he, he, he then his strategy is really taken over by the British Secret Service by Milkweed. And uh, it has really horrifying consequences for Will as well. On the German side, our, our main character, or maybe the most important character is Gretel. Uh, Gretel's a great character. She's really one of my favorites in the novel. And I, and I think the play between her and Raybould is really what the next two novels become about in some way, their antagonistic relationship. Uh, But she is the master strategist. She is, in essence, a spy master. She can see the future, and one supposes that she can really see multiple futures with multiple outcomes. And so when she acts, she acts in such a way that uh, people are influenced to create the future that she wants, and that that future will be made manifest in reality. And so that that's what she does. She works really towards her own ends on behalf of her own private interests. And one of them is to protect her brother. But I also wonder if she's the only person in the super-powered group whose powers do not need a battery pack for activation. She also puts up with a lot of abuse from other characters, but she's really manipulative and evil, uh, though also very sympathetic. She has an obsession with Raybould, as I kind of pointed out. And she really sees the world as a series of causes and effects as almost a kind of chessboard that she can manipulate. In other words, she sees the expansive potentialities of life and reality as a kind of closed system that she can manipulate and uh, that's key to I don't know at least the genre that this novel's in which is a uh, uh, the spy genre at least on some level. It's gamesmanship and she's the master player. And the need for Eidolons, then she's the catalyst for that as well, because it's really a response to her powers. Um, So she's she's in in a sense really the central figure of this novel. She's the antagonist with the plan that the protagonists uh, have to respond to. Right, because she can know everything basically and and so
0: that is way more valuable than having one dude who can turn invisible right one dude who can right. turn invisible i guess that sounds cool like that might help help you win a football game but like is not going to help you win a war at least not a war of this scale right an all out total war uh, such as the the second world war was so it's really this this precognition this ability to know Everything and to plan around it and to see the possibilities and so on—that really is the thing that they are are getting out of uh, out of having these these Nazi X Men. Which I'm going to stick with Nazi X Men because they went to they, they grew up as kids together and went to a school. So that's, I'm sticking with that. Though I see the I see the comparisons to the Fantastic Four as well. I don't know. Maybe we'll be talking about Nazi Spider Man before this episode is uh, is is over. Well, I want to talk about some of the um, the secondary characters on the the British side. There's a, a big cast of characters in this in this book. The first of them I want to talk about is uh, Stevenson, who is uh, a British intelligence operative. Uh, he has been since the First World War. He was actually injured, uh, wounded, I should say, in the First World War and had to take a, a desk job. And now he's, I don't know, middle management, I, I guess, in, uh, in in British in- intelligence. But he is also the head of the Wizards in the, the, you know, Wizards versus Nazi X-Men unit here. It's his his deal because he is Marsh's boss. And he's also a surrogate father for Marsh, has been since Marsh was a, a, a boy, uh, because when Marsh was a, a boy, his father uh, was killed in the First World War. He didn't have a father figure in his life, and Stevenson stepped in uh, to that role and, you know, got him to Oxford and and so on, you know, made him the person he is today and is now also his, uh, his boss. Uh, we also have Liv Marsh. Liv is short for uh, Olivia here, and that is Marsh's wife. We get Two or three scenes of a rom com in this book as uh, the two of them are getting together, which is happening only because Will was actually trying to pick her up at their local pub when Mars showed up fresh back from a, a mission and wanted to talk. And that's the meat cute that we get. And we get a couple other beats in the, the rom com. And uh, I don't know, people who listen to everything we do on the network, I think, have have, have discovered that I secretly love rom coms.
1: <laughs> I mean, this is not a secret anymore. I'm just, no. I'm what just you acknowledging love, it. it. What you love is uh, structure, story structure. <laughs> <laughs> that might be, <laughs> and romcoms are just the most structured story in existence. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, I'm going to stick with that.
0: Well, Liv and Marsh, uh, they they have a, a baby. This is Agnes Marsh, and this is what you were talking about earlier, Brandon, about the the, the humanizing and the stakes, because Agnes Marsh's little baby she she dies. She dies in a German air raid. It's an air raid that's coordinated by Gretel, who uses her precognitive power to learn that Agnes Marsh is going to be the key to British victory, and that killing this baby, not even a year old, killing this this baby is the key to German victory victory. And so she guides uh, Luftwaffe bombers to the the village in the country where she's staying to be free from the the Blitz. Uh, had to flee London for that. I will say this was a tough element of the the story for me, though it is telegraphed well ahead of time. I I had time to prepare for it, but it was a tough element for me. Uh, But I am also going to want to talk more about this in our strengths and weaknesses segment at the end. And maybe I'll do a bit of telegraphing here because Brandon, you presented this, you know, you hinted at this as something that created stakes and, and humanized Marsh a little bit for you. But I actually am going to critique this as a weakness uh, at the uh, the end of the episode
1: today. I think we're probably on the same page about that. The, this is a novel essentially about the cost of war on children uh, you know, that's how it begins. That's also the implication of the ending of the novel as well. And I, I'm going to talk here a little bit about that as I talk about the German secondary characters, that this is where Tregelis has really written himself into a knot that he doesn't know how to untangle, uh, because he goes through pains to identify the parallels between the british and the and the germans here regarding specifically to the cost that children pay in wartime regardless of the side that they're on but he still feels that there have to be bad guys like real bad guys and tregellis doubles down on what makes a a bad guy here um in in what's really sort of a, a normal a dominant mode of storytelling that we come across a lot in a lot of stories. But before I get into that briefly and talking about these German secondary characters, we should meet some of them. So <laughs> we have Doctor von Westarp. He's a mad scientist. He's the one who creates the Uber mention for reasons. I mean, I suppose <laughs> it's for his own glory, uh, but he's evil. He's just evil, and he wants to corrupt what humans are, so that he can wield them like tools and this is obviously a stand in for Nazi ideology and we get more of these analogies between what Dr. Westarp is up to and what the Nazis are up to in the in the novel so as a result he and his experiments that are really just children are planning and aiding the German government's plans for world domination. And they're the bad guys because they have a plan that interferes with the ordinary lives of other people. And this is what I mean by sort of the dominant uh, mode of storytelling, the hero's journey, I suppose you'd call it. That's all subtext here. What really makes the Germans bad is their lack of integrity, I won't say they lack courage because they've got that, but they lack integrity. They don't stand for anything because they're, the other minor characters here, the German secondary characters are mostly motivated by fear or power or dominance than by care or love or their desire to have a normal existence. They care about their in-group to some extent, but also not really. And Reinhardt is a character. Uh, he's he's the Ben Grimm character. No, he's not. Reinhardt is a character. He's the human torch character <laughs> of, the, of the Fantastic Four. Uh, that's the best example of this. He's a human flamethrower. He's selfish to the point that he acts entirely without empathy in assaulting people, in engaging in his darkest desires. And I think Tregulus uses Reinhardt to demonstrate the real corruption of the soul that believing these evil ideologies represents. Reinhardt wants to do bad stuff because he's enjoyed it, because he enjoys it, and because he's given permission tacit permission to do it. We also have Klaus, who is Greta's brother. He's the Raybald Marsh equivalent on the German side he and Raybald even perform parallel missions in the book. And Klaus is an evil per se. He really only acts to either protect himself or his sister. He's a very sympathetic character and he's the closest we have to a, a character having integrity on the German side. When he does his spy mission stuff, like using his dematerialization power, his body count is immediately, uh, I think way higher than Ray Uh, And I guess you could consider the German team less concerned about the immediate collateral damage that they cause than the British, like it's them that are killing other people directly. The British just sort of let other collateral damage happen or calculate the cost in a very different way. We also have Heike, who is just weak and here mostly to demonstrate how evil Reinhardt is. If you want to take the kind of popular, lazy critique of a character like this. She's the fridged woman. Uh, and finally, there's the mentally challenged brute, who is a combination of, of Ben Grimm, the thing in the Fantastic <laughs> Four, and the Incredible Hulk. He can also use energy shields, I think. So he's like also Sue Storm. I don't know. But anyway, these guys are all evil or used by evil people, and they don't stand up to them. And they have to be bad, because if they weren't, this book would I guess, lose what moral compass it sort of has or what what moral compass it's trying to communicate. And so let me just circle back to this kind of dominant mode of storytelling. What I really mean to say here is the bad guys are the ones with the plan. They execute it. They also really don't have scruples and the good guys are reacting to that plan and maybe cross some ethical lines. But we'll. Talk, I'm going to talk about way more about that in the next section on themes and motifs. Right. We might as well just move into to that right now because, well, one, I want to hear <laughs> more about this. You've piqued my
0: interest. Uh, I'm going to go second. Well, Brandon's going to go first here. I'm going to talk about the, the alternate history stuff in this book because, hey, I'm the historian here at the, at the the network. But yeah, this themes and motifs segment we're going to do here, we're each going to present something that we saw in this book to each other. It's a chance for us to, to really just monologue at each other for a few minutes, which is you know our favorite way
1: of talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I am going to talk about the way that ethics in a in, uh, just war, quote unquote, are rationalized as a major theme of this novel, rather than kind of the cost of war on kids, because while it is an element of this novel, it's it loses its emphasis rather rather quickly, though. As I said, the story begins and ends with this sense of the cost that war, that children pay in war. Uh, But this notion of of the rationalization of a just war is really a complicated subject. So I'm going to focus on an approach to adventure storytelling or hero-esque storytelling that we've talked about briefly on the podcast, which is that it's typical in the way we imagine the hero being called to action. In, in a lot of the stories that we tell, that he is called to react to someone else's evil plan. And that's sort of what makes him good. He's responding to someone else's evil and standing up to it. He's not planning to enlarge good because I guess power is inherently evil in some way. That's all very complicated and not going to be teased out. Sorry, folks. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the mode of the hero then is to react to the plot rather than to plan it the good guys' lives are interrupted by the evil machinations of the bad guys. And yes, the good guys have some dark stuff on their side, like there's power to be tempted with, but that's not like what their culture's about. So here, there are a few warlocks, but it's really polite to keep that sort of business hidden. So in the the story, the British have this whole secret organization around hiding the use of warlocks and Eidolons. But the Germans have this traveling show of super people and that's very public and they want more people to sign up to become superheroes. So the ethical norms are different. It's polite to hide your violations of ethical norms, but both sides of this war really commit atrocities And I guess the best that we can say about the British side in terms of atrocities is, as I've been saying, is that they know that what they're doing will spark outrage if they're discovered. So they're at least trying to protect something good in their culture. You know, rough men have to do rough things to win. And the men carry the burden of their choices. They're tortured by that cost, as Will's character is sort of meant to demonstrate throughout this novel. In other words, they're good enough people to feel bad about what they're doing, but they're not so good that they won't do it. They're in service of something larger in the, the, the dominant mode of culture. They were forced into taking these actions by the aggressor. So anyway, how does this tie into the just war theory? Well, earlier I mentioned uh, Soren Kierkegaard's notion of the teleological suspension of the ethical and explained a little bit about what that is This idea comes up for Kierkegaard in um, his pseudonymous work, Fear and Trembling, which is an exploration, both psychological and philosophical, of God's command to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son after God told Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations. So this is kind of a wonky request there on God's part. <laughs> but in any event, in order to suspend the ethical norms of like, Hey, I'm not, I don't want to kill my kid just because God said it in order to achieve the commands given by a higher calling. Like actually everything that God says is the right thing to do in order to suspend the ethical in that sense, there have to be ethical norms that are considered good. There has to be something to violate in order for the the good norms to be protected. And in my mind, this is a big part of how the British in this story, how Tregellis communicates to us that the good guys are good guys, and they can justify their behavior and still maintain the good guys. They are acting out of a sense of duty to their beliefs rather than out of some sort of dark or evil or twisted motivation. And we do see Marsh punished in this novel, both cosmically and immediately, by acting out of vengeance rather than duty during the major action set piece of the book, uh, The Assault on the Farm. The British don't suspend the ethical norms easily, but they are still trying to return to the status quo of, of their good Life of their good cultural norms. And the, and the maintenance of these cultural norms is often the goal of heroes in our modern adventure stories. So Trigellus has put the British in service of an assumed higher good in order to justify their collateral damage, what I'm going to call their evil behaviors, because it's certainly evil to consort with demons and make <laughs> them do stuff and sacrifice your citizens in a war their use of their evil tools and the creation of new warlocks at the end, which is certainly distasteful. So in other words, the heroes of our story are consciously self-sacrificial in pursuit of their goals. And that's a higher good. They will bear the cost of their actions by living with what they've done. But the Germans on the other hand, want to remake the world. They want to create new ethical norms. And that disruption of the status quo makes their actions unjust because they are trying to aggressively change what people consider norms or a sense of the good in order to achieve their evil plan. And to wrap it up here then, a major theme of the novel is how we justify evil actions in service of some higher good. But that higher good tends to exist in a room where the floor keeps on dropping out. And what really interested me throughout most of this novel was how Tregellis was able to keep us rooting for the individuals on both sides of the war. We want them to stay alive while keeping us certain that we want the British to win the war because they're the good guys, the Allies. The Allies. And to me, this is really just a crazy balancing act that I I think he 80% pulls off. Um, And and obviously, this is a major topic that we could talk more about. But that's all I'll say for now about uh, what I kind of encountered as a major theme or motif in this novel. Yeah,
0: there's quite a bit with the the ends justifying the means in in this book, and and maybe also what we might call short sighted thinking. I think one thing that we can say about where this is going next is that ultimately, I mean, it seems clear to me, Brandon. Maybe you'll disagree. That book three in this series, which neither of us has has read, is going to have to be humans versus the idols, right? That the the British wizards here in paying these awful prices and in bringing these demons in to fight the novel. Nazi. Nazi X-Men or Nazi Fantastic Four or Nazi Superman, you know, whatever it is. (laughs) Uh, But bringing these demons in to to do that is going to come with a very terrible price in the the long run. And we're going to have to fight this supernatural battle. That's my guess at what's happening. But even this book ends with a middle stage of that where part of the deal that is being made here, it's not just that the Brits are making this deal with demons. They're also making this deal with the Soviet Union, where They have defeated Nazi Germany, who they they wanted to conquer Europe and remake the world, but have facilitated the Soviet Union doing that exact same thing. So what actually is the deal that they've made here? And, And both Marsh and Will feel... Uh, betrayed at the end by this. And, and they see the writing on the walls, each in their respective spheres here, I think, that Stevenson, in particular, right, is making short-sighted decisions here, uh, selling your soul to to various devils for short-sighted ends. And, and that's really quite fascinating.
1: It is fascinating. And I think what the Soviet Union got at the end of this novel are the uh, superheroes the remaining superheroes, and they can use them to reconstruct uh, what was the Doctor Van Westarp's plan, and, and maybe even do a better job. And Stevenson's response to that is to make sure he can have warlocks in his corner by making a new generation of warlocks, and and that's again the return of this uh, the. the, the Loss of childhood, loss of innocence, that is thrust upon children during wartime. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. The third book, you have to get rid of these kind of universe-breaking characters at some point. Like <laughs> Greta's gonna, Gretel is gonna have to be dealt with. Uh, the Eidolons are going to be have to be dealt with. And again, what, what's really difficult to do is what I think Tregellis pulls off. It's somehow making us feel like the British are the good guys still in this story, that they have a good they want to return to. And um, as this kind of supernatural war ramps up, that's going to be, I think, more and more of what he's going to have to look at is what is the good we want to preserve and how much do we sacrifice to maintain it when all we're doing is reacting to the evils around us? Like, this is a problem I've been having for maybe the past year is why don't we have stories of good people planning long term goods <laughs> and disrupting the norm in order to bring about good instead of just reacting to bad? Our whole political discourse is just both sides responding and reacting to what side they think is bad. And it's 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 this. This is the problem. The heroes react the villain's plan, and this has kind of seeped into our culture. I think in a way that we're going to have to start telling new stories to get out of.
0: Well, that that is the chivalric romance model that so much of our storytelling is on. Right, detective fiction is based on on this, uh, and also superhero stories are based on this because it, yeah, it all goes back to the same to the same thing where you've got a morally righteous hero who's heroic job is to protect people from the forces of evil. But really, what we can translate that to is that the job is to maintain the status quo, right? And that's where in, in comics, in particular, these superhero stories, it's interesting. It's an interesting question of whether or not the superhero is actually, is actually technically the protagonist, because it's the villain who's actually trying to do a thing. And it's the hero who's trying to prevent the thing from happening, because what we want is the maintenance of the status quo. And I I think that you're right, Brandon, to, to point to the fact that most of our stories are on that mold now. They're not just like one type of story in a variety that we can have. They're the dominant storytelling mode. And what it tells us is that the thing we should value is for things to stay the same as they are now, that we should value the status quo, even though maybe the status quo is not actually serving us all that well as we have you know spent 2020 observing.
1: Yeah. Or you and I are now just becoming villains. So (laughs) I don't I don't know quite how to read uh, my mindset these days, but I'm either becoming a villain or uh, I don't know. Maybe this podcast is our villain origin story. Right. I'm into it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Someone should write that
1: story. I would love to have. Yeah. Please write that story for us. Well, Glenn, what, what what was the theme that you wanted to talk about in this novel? Yeah, less of a theme and
0: more of a motif, really, because I just want to take a look at this as an alternate history novel. I want to look at the alternate history stuff. So I'll start by talking about the scope of this book. The Western Front of the Second World War, the, the European theater of the Second World War, I should say, begins in May 1940 as usual. But the whole war is wrapped up by the end of the summer of 1941, uh, rather than in the spring of 1945. So the whole European theater of the Second World War lasts a year, really, with the, the decisive action coming over the 1940-1941 the winter. Uh, and so, you know, that's before Pearl Harbor. So what that means is that the US never enters the the war, at least the European war. The Soviets occupy all of Europe, right? The next book we know is gonna be about the Cold War, except it's going to be a very different Cold War. I mean, the Soviets are still gonna be the the antagonist, but it's gonna be, I think, you know, the the British rather than the Americans who are the on the other side of that. Though that might not be true. In fact, we perhaps could speculate about that in a in a little bit, but the the key point of departure here from what really happened in the Second World War to what's going on in this book. I mean, other than the, you know, speculative fiction elements of wizards and demons and X-Men, you know, and so on. (laughs) The the key point of departure here is actually the, the Battle of Dunkirk. In the real battle of Dunkirk, the the Germans conquer France, the the British army tries to evacuate back to Britain via the French port of Dunkirk, and the Germans try to stop them. Uh, This lasted from the 26th of May to the 4th of June in 1940. So it was just over a week of fighting, about 1 million combatants involved, and it was a massive, massive battle that involved uh, land elements, certainly, but also air and, and sea combat as well. The British lost a lot of planes. They lost a lot of ships, and and with time precious, uh, even small civilian craft were pressed into service. These are things like uh, Thames riverboats, private pleasure yachts that were you know, sent from the from London uh, and 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 harbors all around Britain across the Channel to France to get. Soldiers to you know, ten at a time, eight at a time, uh, to help out to supplement the the naval vessels, the 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 troop transports and the warships that were also doing this. And three hundred and forty thousand British and other Allied soldiers were evacuated over the week uh, of of doing this. But there were also sixty thousand British casualties and twenty thousand French casualties. And the British also left all of their equipment behind. Tanks, other vehicles, artillery, small arms, right? People just, they had to leave their rifles. Almost everything got left behind. This was a heroic moment that averted a catastrophe, but it was not a victory. And Churchill delivered an amazing, uh, just uh, impressive speech on exactly that theme, right? That this was heroic, but it was not a victory. And our work is really just beginning here. But in this book, The Germans win the Battle of Dunkirk. They completely destroy the British Army and also most of its Navy and its Air Force. And of course, right, this is accomplished because Gretel can use her superpower in order to direct the battle, uh, particularly the air and the naval portions of it to make the evacuation impossible. And the cascading effect of this is that what this means immediately is that there is no Royal Navy left to protect against an amphibious invasion. There is no Royal Air Force to fight the Battle of Britain. There's no royal army to defend against an in invasion. And so this one change is really the catalyst for the 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 turn to wizards and the the idolins here, right? They have to use magic in order to protect the, the island.
1: Yeah, that that part of the novel when, when Dunkirk was lost really shocked me. Uh if only because I'm not really a, a war buff in any sense of the word, but I I did see Dunkirk when it came out in theaters, uh, the Christopher Nolan movie, and it's probably one of the best films I think I've ever I've ever seen, uh, just in terms of pure craft and tech that the the, the the technical side of filmmaking. Um, but this was really a shocking moment of the novel to see the Germans win the Battle of Dunkirk. To know what that meant in terms of a loss for the British, and then to recognize the impact of the choice of how are we going to defend this island now, which is, hey, we're going to use Eidolons to change the weather. And, And so, yeah, it's really, really fascinating here. One, how Gretel can kind of bring about changes in reality by using... Information. I mean, they don't really need spies. We we also haven't mentioned that there are these twins who can communicate telepathically. They like feel each other's feelings and stuff. So these twins are also spies. But what happens then is that this novel doesn't become a novel about the war for information and outsmarting the other side. So much of World War Two, and maybe this is just because of your nice uh, history in the. Army Glenn, or maybe because of my familiarity with Cryptonomicon, the novel, but so, so much when I think about war, I think about the information wars that take place. I think about the the Enigma machine. I think about uh, all of these counterintelligence missions. I think about the bravery of civilians, uh, which Dunkirk shows absolutely beautifully and, and heartbreakingly, the film, but this novel then takes a really different tack on what the war is, and I think Tregellis does a really, really good job with that was saying like this is no longer a war about um, information about making tank balloons to stage a fake invasion before d day because we know the surveillance uh, capabilities of the other team and all this other stuff. This becomes a war about essentially a, a very specific class of soldiers who have to do a wholly other sort of set of things to win the war that's really not about intelligence and information because Gretel knows everything. She's omniscient.
0: Well, from the British side, though, that's that's not the case, right? I mean, and our heroes are British intelligence operatives, but you're right, we're not getting, uh, you, you know, a, a, an empty warehouse or former factory converted into uh, teams of mathematicians and uh, secretaries working to break codes and transmit messages to people, right? We're not getting that type of story here, but we are getting a an intelligence operations story, at least from the British perspective. And, and, you know, this is a war story, right? It's actually, I think, quite concerned with those types of, of operations. Uh, what's actually left out, like from my perspective, what I felt was left out were sort of the bigger dimensions of the war. In particular, what is left out, I think, about the real Second World War is the, the nature of Germany, uh, which is to say that although we've been saying Nazi X-Men or Nazi Fantastic Four on this episode, there's not really very much Nazism in this book, right? Even though we have German characters and we're in Germany for much of the book, other than the mad scientist character, there's really no hint of Nazi ideology here. There's certainly no anti Semitism, there's no police state, there's no concentration camps. All of that is absent. I, I get that it's a war book about wizards and X Men. But I think there was room for this. This is is something that I felt was one of the weaknesses of the book, that we have whitewashed that element
1: of the war. It really bothered me as I was reading it to see... The way that Tregellis tries to bring these aspects of the, the horrors of the Nazi regime into the book is through this kind of grotesque caricature of the mad scientist who's building mass graves and cremation ovens for failed experiments, which are going to be German citizens, but these are people that are going to volunteer and fail and be removed, not a systemic erasure of a people group as a result of of, of, a, of a propaganda machine and of just horrifying unrestrained, uh, unrestricted moral evil. And and to me, that that was a weakness of the story as well. Is okay. We have Klaus kind of building these uh, cremation ovens. We have them digging these mass graves. Uh, we have him building the devices of torture that he was exposed to as a child and and is still kind of used against him. We have Von Westarp who dies sort of unceremoniously, but his project continues. But we're not talking about the real evils of the regime. We're representing them in the small scale, but it's not enough. It's just It just wasn't enough. Uh, and, and to me, that was a problem as well. So I'm glad you pointed that out. We we should talk a little bit about the way that the war is actually
0: presented to us, right? I didn't talk about how we learn about Dunkirk in this in this book, but it's really through uh, a, an interlude, right? We get a, an act break, we get a pause in following the the cat and mouse game of our uh, spies, our, our German spies and our British spies, and we get essentially a kind of news report about the Battle of Dunkirk, the way it plays out in this alternate history. And that's the way that the developments in the war are, are narrated to us uh, in this book, which I think is actually a great device. It allows Dragulus to be telling this story about one really hyper-focused component of the war, but to still remind us that there's this bigger stage. And I guess I would have liked him to have done something like that in regards to painted a bigger picture about what Germany is up to about what Germany is is like about Nazi ideology to at least acknowledge that that's a big part of what's what's going on here. But I also think that actually would have served to remind us how awful it is, how evil it is that Will Beauclerk, uh, and, uh, on Stevenson's orders, is killing mass numbers of British civilians in order to curry favors with demons right? That to actually hold up Nazis being real Nazis in this book would have let us see precisely the extent to which the British are becoming like the enemy themselves. They're becoming the thing they're trying to not just defeat, but trying to prevent themselves from becoming by being occupied by these people.
1: Right. I I mean, it's a real shortcoming. I I don't, I, I do think that you know, Will's deterioration as a human being is well explored. But then Tregellis kind of pulls away from that and uh, gives us some hope about Will. But, you know, I don't think Will really gets to be redeemed, I, I really don't, uh, and and that that bothered me a little bit about this as well. This is all super nitpicky stuff, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it really is. This is a this is a really exciting novel in many ways, and it's a it's a pretty good uh, spy and war novel. It's just these elements, um, to me, when we talk about strengths and weaknesses, I'm going to say something to the effect of uh, Tregellis just doesn't convince me that the use of Eidolons is justified in response to what the Germans are are doing. And it's because of what you said, Glenn, he is not really writing about the horrors of the Nazi regime, that such a response would be justified. Rather, it's focused on defeating Gretel. And that to me is just a a little bit of a misstep if we're really going to focus and nitpick the alternate history of this novel. I'll tug on two threads there. One is just to say, yeah, I loved this
0: book. It was an amazing read. I, I, and I actually think I could have probably breezed through this book and not really dwelled on that very much. But hey, we're doing a podcast on this, right? Which means we've we've read it multiple times, lived with it, jotted down notes, come up with topic discussions, and and so then it really stands out to me when we're trying to to break it down. But but as far as Will's arc goes. My sense is that we're going to continue to follow these characters, at least some of them, into the next book. And I think that ultimately, uh, Will might end up... Becoming the real protagonist of the series, and that he is going to have to redeem himself and uh, save the world in some way, or you know, sacrifice himself. Might you know that that's a pretty classic redemption arc. Uh, that would be my guess. Knowing absolutely nothing, in fact, shielding myself from knowing absolutely anything about what happens in the ne- in the next two books, uh, so that we could jump in here today and talk just about this one. But that would be my guess for Will, because I think you're you're right to say that it's unsatisfying that he doesn't get that. So he's going to
1: have to get that right yeah I mean he he gets a little glimmer of hope. He gets restored to his family and and, and things like that. Um, but to me it's uh, it's unearned, and it's just uh, an example of Tregellus relying on the hero's defense of the status quo, which is inherently good, to like restore the people who have done the evil to achieve that maintenance um, and not an, an earned redemption arc. So it's, it's something, I mean, Will, to me, is the character I'd, I'd want to follow in the next two books, uh, Will and Gretel, uh, because I think she's a great character as well. I I agree. I think Marsh maybe has
0: served his purpose here in this book, and I I don't need him in the next one. But Will and Gretel, I definitely want to to see continue on. Well, let's keep talking about themes and motifs a little bit here. We're going to talk about the title. There's actually also a number of epigrams in this book. We'll just use these as sort of ways to try to figure out what, you know, Tregulus wants readers to take from this book. You know, so the the title of this book is Bitter Seeds. I, I don't know of the phrase bitter seeds in any literary work but the phrase bitter weeds appears in Winston Churchill's speech in the aftermath of the the Dunkirk evacuation which I only just accidentally decided to read <laughs> again this week in preparation <laughs> for this novel and you know thinking about Dunkirk I I, I, just, I just had an aha moment so l- let me let me just read the the passage of the the speech here and you know I'm not even going to try to sound like Winston Churchill because it would just embarrass everyone involved in the whole process perhaps especially uh Jonathan and Lithgow, I guess. <laughs> and uh, here's what here's what Churchill said. We are told that Herr Hitler has a plan for invading the British Isles. This has often been thought of before. When Napoleon lay at Bologna for a year with his flat-bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, There are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Now, Churchill made up that story about someone telling Napoleon there are bitter weeds, or he heard it from someone else who made it up. It's just not something that actually happened. But the idea of the bitter weeds here is that the British people are hard to conquer, and any invasion is going to be costly. Even if it succeeds, the occupation then will also be costly. So it is not worth it. And I do think that Tregulus is playing with this idea here, because they're are no bitter weeds because the British lost the Battle of Dunkirk. The British Expeditionary Force did not return in this alternate history, and instead they have turned to the islands to protect the the island. They've turned to dark magic to, to demons the cost is high for doing this, right? The cost is high. It is growing. This book ends with some foreshadowing about how the Soviets are now going to be a menace of some sort, but so also are the Eidolans. And so this turn to the Eidolans for help was a planting of bitter seeds. That's my sense of the title.
1: Yeah, I I think it works on a number of levels beyond that as well. My sense of the title was about, uh, really about the... What's being done to the children? So, like Raybald Marsh is basically—I would—I would characterize his childhood as one of abuse, though maybe more. It's more manipulative that Stevenson was saw a kid who was brave and a brawler and sort of manipulated his whole life so that Marsh would become uh, a spy, uh, a loyal spy, loyal to Stevenson, pressed into a service. The same thing happens to Will, um, and then all of the the german uh, x-men kids this is the same sort of thing that's going on with them so i saw it more as uh the bitter seed of of of, of abuse that's like planted in these children and then how it's played out once they're given once all the reins are taken off and they're allowed to play freely on on the world stage well i think that's probably better than my my, my explanation was
0: <laughs> you know something that we have not actually said about this book is that it it Opens with a prologue at the end of the the First World War. It's like nineteen twenty or so, where we meet Will, we meet Marsh, we meet Gretel and Klaus as little kids, and then you know we as uh, as typically happens in a speculative fiction book, we then catapult forward you know twenty years uh, to get the actual story that we're going to get. But what we are shown in those moments is not just our cast of characters as kids, but we're shown these adults who are maltreating them. And, you know, Nazi mad scientist is over the top with it. I mean, he really is a supervillain in behaving that way. But I think you're right to say that Stevenson, the, the best thing, the kindest thing we could say about Stevenson is that he's manipulative, but he seems a little bit abusive, maybe not in the prologue, but as an adult dealing with, with, with Marsh as an adult, I don't like him at all. I think he's actually kind of a, a pretty awful person. We see Will's grandfather doing this as well. There's a reason Will has run away as far as he can from being a wizard, uh, you know, but no matter how much he tries to, you know, run away, they keep bringing him back in his, you know, his arc here, where he has to actually do what his grandfather always wanted and become a wizard. But this is set up for us in the prologue of Will's brother actually trying to protect Will from their grandfather, who he knows is taking him outside of the house to do
1: something weird. Yeah, I mean they're all abused children uh and then you know that's a bitter seed and then they grow up and there's no really culture even there to stand in for parents that reinforce the goodness though they 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 do get a sense of that but they're also growing up in this inner war period. It's a very sort of complicated uh notion I suppose but yeah I think the title works on on all of these levels. Everything That is done from the beginning of the novel to the end of it is a bitter seed planted that will yield rotten fruit. I shouldn't say rotten fruit, poisonous fruit. Yeah, bitter bitter seeds yield bitter fruit and that's definitely what we
0: what we have here that you know and and not just the war but of course the fact that we're, we're gonna have to fight some demons at, at some point right is the the end result end result of of all of this well let's talk about these uh, these epigrams we've got three of them here it's 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 over overburdened with epigrams perhaps uh Brandon you're gonna do the first one
1: yeah the first one is from uh the book of Habakkuk. You know, you don't see too many authors quoting the minor prophets in the in the <laughs> Christian Old Testament. Uh, Habakkuk is one of them. Habakkuk is a really strange book. It's very short. If we had more time, I would read the first two chapters of it, which are absolutely incredible. Um, and the verse that Tregellus uses as an epi- epigram is from God's response to Habakkuk. I'll read Habakkuk's complaint here, and then I'll read... Uh, the verse, verse five, that uh, Ian Tregelis uses. So here's Habakkuk's complaint. It is, "'O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise.'" So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is, uh, you know, kind of a classic, it's, it's really more of a a lament. It's, uh, what what in the like English literature we'd call like a Jeremiah ad, which is comes from Jeremiah, the, the book of Jeremiah, which is a lament, <laughs> and then you get the book of Lamentations also, um, and then God's opening response here is: Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. What God is doing here is is pretty surprising. Uh, it turns out, spoiler alert, that God is going to let the Chaldeans invade Israel and Israel take <laughs> over, and, and 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 so Habakkuk then is like, "Hey, everything is really bad here. Like you've abandoned us, not just we've abandoned you, and everything's bad." And, and that's a kind of classic lament. So Habakkuk is a prophet, is a prophet, not because he's really internalized the word of God, though he has, and he's communicating to the kings or the people of Israel being like, you've all gone astray and now God is going to punish us. Habakkuk is really just angry at, at God. He's telling God that like, hey man, like you've abandoned us too. And God is saying, um, and, and, and there's no justice. And God is saying, well, like, well, here's how I think about justice yes, things are really bad, but they're going to get worse because the Chaldeans, who you won't like, they're way worse than any of the stuff you've got going on with your leadership and people mistreating each other and justice being perverted. They're way worse than that. I'm going to let them rule over you so that, uh, uh, the people, my people will come back to me. The Israelites will return to me and, and cry out to me in the proper way again. It sounds crazy. Um, but I also want to say here that that Habakkuk is an awesome prophetic book. It is about the disintegration of society. It reads really relevant to our life today. It's about the corruption of people in power. It's about corrupt economic systems. It's it's really good. Um, but to to kind of put God's words here as the first epigram in a story about England being under constant threat of invasion and destruction from an evil empire. And look, I, I'm not going to get into like Lost Tribes of Israel conspiracy theories here, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe maybe that's playing a role in what Tregellis is up to here. Uh, all of this seems to indicate that Tregellus is pointing out, maybe the one way that God moves in history is to let bad things happen so that he can restore his people his to himself that, that his people will want God's way of life back in their lives again. I it's not great. Maybe that I, I can't really figure out exactly what Trigellus is doing with this other than maybe it sounds cool, but maybe it's something he's saying is like God let the British come under the threat from Germany and maybe play with demons in this way in order to restore them to the right path. As I said, this is a really hideous reading of history, especially World War II. So maybe a better explanation of the implication of this epigram is simply to say that corruption breeds corruption. And that sometimes the best explanation you'll get of why things are so terrible at times in the world is because people haven't stopped being corrupt. That it just goes all the way from the the root to the top of the tree. Since Habakkuk is a book about these sorts of kind of corruptions, that's how I'm going to choose to read it rather than uh, kind of the all things work out for the good, naive reading of God's movement in history. Of,
0: of all three epigrams, this is the one that actually is the deepest cut, and it's it's therefore maybe strange that it comes first. But I think that the the bit that he's chosen here, just, you know, one one five, is really just Because it's about, hey, something really crazy is going to happen. And you you would never believe it if I told it to you. Because this is a story about crazy speculative stuff happening in what is otherwise a, a realist novel. But putting it in context like that, I think shows us. Definitely something that that Tregulus is playing with here, which might actually even hint at, hey, this is not going to be a book about restoring the status quo. This might end up being a story about a a real serious transformation, right? What is the world going to look like after, uh, presumably in book three, we all have to get together and fight Demons that we foolishly unleashed, and then we do we have an opportunity to remake the world at that point, and and to make it a better place? Is that is that where this is going? Because I I don't believe that Tregulus was just flipping through a book of quotations and saw this and thought it would be cool as an epigram. I, I no, because that that doesn't exist for the book of Habakkuk. Right? He was reading this. Right? He was reading <laughs> right. the Bible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and Habakkuk is great. Like I I recommend everybody go read it. It's so good it's so fascinating it's confounding on many levels um and it's about now I mean this this level of corruption existing in society has always been there and it always will be and the way people lament to God and then getting these unexpected answers from God is actually a major part of uh the the, the Christian, tradition, uh, which is like, you think you're unsettled now? Wait, (laughs) wait and see how unsettled you can become and how uncomfortable things can get. get Because listen, corruption's not going away because you can't stop people from being myopic and self-centered and self-focused. And the more power they have, the worse things are going to get. Um, And sometimes the only way to change that is to restart in some way. Or in the case of Habakkuk is let the Babylonians invade. Habakkuk, I should say, is, is usually credited with being written about 612, 600 BC. Um, so also like around the time, the book of Daniel and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, people who really turn to uh, the Bible for, an I don't know, a, a sense of comfort uh, should frequently be surprised by not only the laments, uh, but the sharpness of the critiques of a broken society. And then God's response is, if you're not going to be noble, you're setting yourself up for more destruction. Um, And noble, I guess, really means if you're not going to do what I say is right, if you're not going to live with just laws in a just society, things will not get better. And you'll weaken your own infrastructure to the point where it will be easy for someone else to come in and rule. Well, I have the much more
0: mundane or the most mundane of these uh, these three epigrams here. This comes from William Halsey, and the, the line is simply this. There are no great men, only great challenges that ordinary men are forced by circumstances to meet. Uh, Halsey was an American admiral in the Pacific theater of World War II, though who knows if any of that is actually even happening in this alternate history. But uh, the point is that we're getting a story about regular people doing great things. And that could describe Marsh, could describe Will, but it does also describe the transformation of German war orphans into X-Men through mad science and child abuse, right? That uh, that all of our characters are, in some sense, ordinary people doing great things, even though we are seeing that some of them have superpowers.
1: Well, I like that explanation. I'm not going to quibble with it at all. <laughs> uh, the, the final epigram comes from Nietzsche. It's from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Uh, and it's this behold, I give you the overman. I mean, uh, does this need an explanation? (laughs) I will say this though. Uh, I, I don't have a copy of this book. Um, so I was looking it up online, which is usually like largely what I found were, were Walter Kaufman's translations. And the phrase typically given is I teach you the overman as Zarathustra is a kind of, uh, prefiguration of this concept of the overman. And, and the goal of the overman, Overman or Übermensch is in a sense about overcoming nihilism, about self-realization and fully embracing the will to power, your ability to impact the world in some way. And of course, will to power is a core part of um, German Nazi ideology, but also how the children on the German side are able to manifest their powers. It's called like willpower, basically. Yeah. So, of course, this story presents the German ideal of the Übermensch in some way, ironically. Um, but more importantly, I think that this epigram points out the the strange entwined history that Nietzsche has with Nazism. Um, Nietzsche's sister took his texts and really went through some expurgation and editing to make his writings favorable to the in-group of people who valued ideological purity and ethnic purity. Um, also, I mean, this book has superpowered people in it. (laughs) So I mean, that's a part of it too. Right, I
0: mean, th- this is a nod to the uh, one of the core ideas of the book, which is that Tregulis is taking the idea of something that Nazis were I- I- trying to do, or at least talking about doing, in their their rhetoric of creating uh, supermen or of being the race of superman, right? Which is to say, eugenics, right, was a big part of their ideology. But Tregulis is is dialing that up to eleven. Well, I mean, frankly, the Nazis had dialed that up to eleven. I mean, let's be clear about that. But he's he's taking it, uh, he's pushing it into the realm of speculative fiction and and saying okay but what if what hitler and and also what if what nietzsche was talking about was actually x men and you know not just eugenics but actually creating some sort of super villain, someone with powers that actually defy the laws of physics uh, as we understand them. And that's a pretty common move in speculative fiction, right? To to take something out of the realm of the ordinary and to put it into the realm of extraordinary to, to make it speculative. Uh, Tregulus is just having a little joke here by, you know, uh, hanging a lamppost on it, basically.
1: Yeah. And, and I should say in the text also that Zarathustra is represented as like having lightning powers or like all, all sorts of other stuff. Like the metaphors used to describe what he's doing and what he can do is like, it's superpowers. So that's, that's there kind of in the P in, in the text of this book, Zarathustra as well. Well, let's move
0: into talking about the, the craft of this book. And I'll kick us off by talking about storytelling that we, we, we've talked quite a bit about some of the storytelling techniques and storytelling elements all, already. But there are two narrative techniques that I think are, are worth uh, talking about a little bit further here. And the first of them is, as you pointed out, Brandon, that this is a book with multiple point of view characters. You described this as uh, you know, the George R. R. Martin school of, of writing about big military and political stories. But this book didn't need to be written that way, right? It could have been. Tregulis could have decided to just focus on the British story. You know, we still might have gotten some multiple points of view there, but we could have also just had this only be from the perspective of Marsh, for example. So the, the the discussion question that I've got for you here, Brandon, is do you like that we had all of these point of view characters, not just several British characters, but also the German characters? And, and, and what do you think we gain by that?
1: Well, I think that's kind of going to lend itself to some of what I'm going to talk about with genre. So I'll hold off on giving a complete answer to your question, which would just be me telling you what I think about how the genres (laughs) function in the story. But I will say that um, what we get is a kind of deeper adventure narrative. We get more stakes for more people, um, which may water down the stakes of you know Raybald, Marsh, and Will. Uh, to me, what I really appreciate about the multiple POVs is that we get just the right amount of Will's character in this story. I mean, to me, he is the emotional heart of this story. He carries the most burdens. He has the most feelings. He's the most emotive. And I think taking them out and giving us uh, Raybald Marsh alone as a sort of James Bond type figure would have been great in some ways, but we would have had to do more fish out of water stuff with Marsh encountering all of this information or being brought into the wizard thing. So I think this was actually the most elegant way to tell the story to give us the most for what Tregellis is trying to do here. I think if we just had one POV, um, he'd be jammed up in a number of ways that, that would have lessened the book, in my opinion. So I really do think that the multiple POVs work well. Uh, and I don't really have any critiques of that as a, as a storytelling choice. Yeah, I think it works
0: really well also. And it, it, it builds the world up a, a, lo- a little bit too. I mean, if we only had Marsh, certainly the world would feel much smaller. And, and even that would be true if we just had several British point of view characters, uh, you know, well, well, really, I guess, Will, I guess, would be the other one that we would have really. And and so I'm glad that we've got that broadened out. The, the other technique that he uses that we've talked about already are these historical interludes, right? This is how we learn about Dunkirk, for example. This also is about broadening the the world, about reminding us that that although we have a tightly, tightly focused story here, uh, which is definitely a compliment, right? This is a tightly focused story that just moves and moves and moves, but it is being told against the backdrop of this much bigger war that is involving millions of people, uh, that uh, at least hundreds of thousands, if not well over a million people, are, are dying in this. Uh, that in order for us to not completely lose sight of that, Tregulus uses these historic interludes. I quite like them. I think they're well written. The only complaint I really have about them is that I wish there were more of them. And and this can even go back to the complaint that I had earlier about the whitewashing of Nazi ideology here, because I think this would have been a place where Tregulus could have brought some of that in. This could have been a technique that he could have he could have doubled the number of them, even tripled the number of them, which would have only ultimately added 20 pages to this book, I think. And I think that would have been well served.
1: I think I could have done with more that more of them or none of them. Uh, To me, these are kind of the a forgivable mistake (laughs) in essence in the novel. uh, And here's why. It's a stupid reason, but it's just sometimes the things that take you out of a book are the things that take you out of it. So this, you know, your mileage may vary here, but using this like literal bird's eye view. really upset me like really like I was just like I'm out he, he uses Ravens flying around from place to place to give us like a literal bird's eye view of the the bigger game board here and to me um, I just would have taken the birds out I guess and if I done if he had done that and added more of the historical dimension from kind of a, a God's eye view perhaps um, to me that would have I don't know changed my opinion of these (laughs) interludes.
0: (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to bring the Ravens back up later. So I will push you for uh, defending your, your take on that in a, in a little bit. But I think, yes, what I'm envisioning in in terms of having more of them is a a God's eye view of them. I think I would have just liked things like here's a Churchill speech. Here's a Hitler speech in the, in the middle of this, a radio broadcast, something, something like that. Um, You know, every, you know, just more frequently than we, than we got them here, I would have doubled the pace of those so that we could have been reminded more frequently that that there is this bigger stage happening here and gotten a little more context for it. It also just would have been fun, I think, to get more examples of... How the war is changing? Like, give us more of the alternate history stuff in this alternate history. That's something that certainly would appeal to me as a as a reader. But uh, let's talk about genre, Brandon. We gave you this one because you're someone who loves spy stories. I am not. So uh, let's uh, let's size this one up as a spy story.
1: Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that this book really blends several minor genres. You know, like cosmic horror and science fiction and. Uh, the war novel, uh, but the narrative is really drawing on the two major genres, which are the spy thriller and the action novel. And, and this novel does have some elements of at least the uh, Le Lacar esque spy thriller. I read the book Flap earlier and it mentions Alan First. I've not read him, so I, I can't compare. Um, I can't really compare what's going on here to Alan First. I've read a bunch of adventure novels, action novels, read a Few spy thrillers, though in film, I think I, I'm kind of more familiar with the genre. Um, but the the, the Lecar esque spy thriller has elements that include protagonists who are closer in their character, and I don't mean like their characterization, but like in their who they are as a person, and maybe closer in the way they relate to the world than they'd publicly like to admit. So like I already mentioned up the par- mentioned the parallel between Klaus and Raybould and how they're really two sides of the same coin. And these are also people who have the understanding that what they're doing is pretty much bad for everyone. I, James Bond is sort of an exception here, um, <laughs> but you know, where else in the world can they use their skills in a legitimate way? There's a certain kind of genius To the spy that the world requires an outlet for. By genius, I mean like the the guiding spirit, not like super smart. Um, And you know, this is of course Raybald Marsh and Will. Like Will would never be a warlock otherwise. Marsh would just be probably like a brute criminal uh, if Stevenson hadn't brought him in and, and taught him the the trade. Also, Klaus, you know, has a real crisis of conscience in the in the second half of the novel and thinks about you know what he's doing whether it's good, he destroys some stuff that like would aid the Germans in a way that he thinks is unethical. So they all carry these questions of ethics and of conscience, and it really levels the moral playing field between the two sides. Plus, you know, a lot of the big plot moments in this novel are structured around infiltration, espionage, sabotage, and heists. That's literally every single set piece in the book. So (laughs) that's spy stuff, right? Um, But these elements, these set pieces aren't written, in my opinion, to highlight the stakes and the importance of the information gathered per se, although explicitly that's what they're about in the text. But really, the stakes are about the characters' lives. They're about the action scenes. How are they going to get out of them? the ability to get out of a tight situation. And this to me really makes it more action-y than spy-y because the focus is is on what the characters are doing, not what the characters are getting from performing these tasks. They're action scenes. They're not merely spy scenes. So like in a, in a spy thriller, I guess, I really feel the stakes are put more on the information getting to the right place so that the correct strategy in the grand game can be played out. So it's, a, it's really a minor distinction, but I'm just saying that this novel then is, is really focused on the actions that win the war, so to speak, not the information game being played that lets the war be won by grand strategy. Uh, and this is really hard to do. It's hard to do this well, and Trigellus excels in this. He excels in the blending of these elements. It's seamless. It's really quite a feat. So, as I said, I don't like spy
0: stories at all. I do like James Bond movies, but I otherwise do not watch other spy movies. Uh, an argument that you and I have off mic uh, uh, rather <laughs> frequently, Brandon, is uh, about whether or not the second Captain America movie is a good movie. <laughs> and, uh, I know that objectively you are right. It is a good movie, but uh, I just fell asleep in the middle of it. It was not It was not for me. So I don't know this literature at all. And, you know, we are a speculative fiction show here. Atas is a speculative fiction show. So it's possible that we've got people in the audience as well who have not read these spy books but maybe read this book and and loved it so what is a a non-speculative fiction spy thriller that you would recommend to someone who'd be interested in checking that out
1: well i think you you have to read Carre here so to me tinker Taylor, soldier spy is really all you need out of a out of a spy novel um, but like I said, I'm really far more familiar with the film side of this. I, I read, I've read you know dozens of adventure novels, which is why I think this this book is more like that. To do a spy novel well, you need to be able to write characters who think about strategy, but also psychology. And that's very hard to do. So like a like another great spy movie, in my opinion, that's really about the cost of information, the cost of revenge, like the cost of being the rough man doing the rough thing, um, is Munich, which I think is is really more of a spy story. But that's one about revenge, too. So it's like more action-y. Um, and if, if what really appeals, if the Greta stuff appeals to you in this Novel, uh, to me, that's it's kind of handled really clumsily because the game is stacked. So, like, it's not an information game that's being played. Obviously, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is where you'd go. um, Also, Cryptonomicon, the Pacific War stuff, the counterintelligence stuff is awesomely handled in that book uh, and is largely more spy stuff. It's like more about being bored and doing morphine than it is about doing cool action (laughs) stuff. But, you know, for for the action side of things, there's uh, James Rollins, who has this whole like team of spies who find uh, magical artifacts from like the crusade and stuff. His first novel, I thought was excellent because he had his whole life to write it on his lunch break. He was a a veterinarian. Um, So, you know, (laughs) he wrote he wrote a a modern techno thriller spy riff on King Solomon's Minds that I think is really fun. It's really great. And then I read the second one and I was like, okay, he's on an 18 month contract now. He's pumping these out. Uh, so he's doing the research for f- six months. He's writing the action stuff and it loses some of that, I don't know, spy quality that I really appreciate. So I guess my core recommendation is anything Jean Le Carre in both film and the novel world would be where I would start digging into the really... Cerebral spy genre more than the action spy genre. Yeah, and for the record, I do love Garrick on Deep Space Nine, and
0: uh, <laughs> we have actually done some uh, some Garrick focused episodes over on Lower Deck. So those i those I love. So I'll throw Deep Space Nine, or at least the Garrick episodes of Deep Space Nine, into the, the recommendation pile there. Well, I think that wraps up what we wanted to do in terms of talking about storytelling. But let's talk about the word smithing element of the writing craft here. The the prose. Uh, I loved this book. I thought it was a, a fun, easy read. I read the whole thing in three and a half, four sittings, I guess. It was a real page turner. It was a delight to read a real page turner. You 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 know, you have, uh, have commented from time to time over on Elder Sign, Brandon, that uh, we read a lot of dense 19th century prose, which can be quite beautiful, but sometimes it's nice to turn a page more frequently than every five minutes. This is that book. Beautiful writing, but quick and fast and just super fun.
1: Yeah, I, I really loved this book, too. Trigellus writes action. I mean, and that's hard to do. It's harder to do than I think most people who uh, are amateur writers think, because your sense construction has to be tight. Your sense of strategy has to be large. And your ability to weave plots has to be great. Trigellus is really good at all of this. And if shines. I mean, this book just really shines on the, on the pure prose level. And I, you know, I brought a passage, I'm sure you did too, Glenn. That's an example of what we thought really sh- shown in this book. I didn't bring an action scene. I brought one of the more emotional scenes because Trigellus has to balance that in order to give weight to what he's doing, which I said, you know, as I've said, he's done very well. So I'm going to read a section from, from chapter 12 of this book, because I think it really highlights Trigellis' commitment to the emotional trauma that Marsh experiences and the weight he carries throughout the novel. I think it's it's just effective writing. It's above workmanship style writing. Um, and in this section it's Marsh's child's first birthday. That child has died, and Marsh has thrown himself into work and neglected his wife in order to, to cope with this tragedy. And this is after he's done something unforgivable at work. He has failed in such an egregious way. So he's carrying a lot of, uh, he's carrying a lot of misery around. So here, here's the passage. It's on page 80 of the edition that I have. It had been early when he finally abandoned the pretense of sleep. He'd gone upstairs and rummaged through the many empty milkweed offices until he'd found a fountain pen and stationery. At first, he'd intended merely to post a letter to live, but the date brought a new rawness to Agnes's death, ripped the scabs from that half-healed wound, leaving him tender and unprotected. The reality of the empty offices caught him unaware, forcing him to accept the reality he'd disregarded for months. The offices were empty because of him. Milkweed had been decimated because of his mistake, because there was no reasoning with the inarticulate rage he felt. The same rage that had become a hammer, pounding on the grief wedged between himself and Liv, driving it until they'd been thrown apart. She couldn't live in the margins of his agony. She needed her own space to grieve." I just think it's beautiful, kind of hard-boiled writing, uh, but it's also so effective at communicating what Marsh is carrying in the last act of this novel.
0: Yeah, Marsh's character arc is, I think, really is is quite interesting. We'll we'll talk about that in the the strengths and weaknesses segment. But this is a beautiful bit of uh, of emotive writing here. There's he's, he's using quite a bit of, of imagery, right, showing us what this uh, uh, what the offices are like, and then relating that to a, a, a feeling, but then also a reflection on the story that we've gotten so far. This is kind of a way to get us not just deep into the point of view of Marsh, but then also at the same time, kind of contradictorily, to take us step back and reflect on what is the story that's happened so far, what have been the consequences of choices that characters, in this case specifically Marsh, have, have made, consequences for other people, consequences for our, our character, and and what's going to be the consequence for the, the plot moving on. So Tragulus in this passage is doing at least three different things and doing them all really well.
1: What passage did you bring to read to us tonight? <laughs> right. Well, I have
0: brought a passage that I know you hated, um, which I was already going to do <laughs> before I knew that you hated it, which I knew before we got on to to record today. So I've actually been keeping this uh, close to my my vest here uh, for like a month as we prepared to, to do this uh, to do this episode. So I am going to read the first passage of the book, and it is the the birds. It's the bird's eye view. It's the, the it's not really an interlude because it's coming first, but it is also one of these sort of historical. Uh, steps back, right? It's the bird's eye view of what we get. So I'll I'll, I'll read this here. Murder on the wind. Crows and ravens wheeled beneath a heavy sky like spots of ink splashed across a leaden canvas. They soared over leafless forests, crumbling villages, abandoned fields of barleycorn and wheat. The fields had gone to seed. Village chimneys stood dormant and cold. There would be no waste here, no food free for the taking. And so the ravens moved on, For years, they had watched armies surge across the continent with the ebb and flow of war, waltzing to the music of empire. They had dined on the detritus of warfare, feasted on the warriors themselves. But now, the dance was over, the trenches empty, the bones picked clean, This is a a description of the First World War and and really the the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of the first world war. This is nineteen twenty that this is this is happening. And we do get, as we said, we get a few interludes in the book where we check in on crows and ravens as well to see how the war is treating them. This is the the device that Tregulus uses for us to check in on the war is to show us the way that these these carrion Creatures are responding to it. This is a move that is more or less taken from the the 1812 poem by the American poet Joel Barlow about ravens in Russia during Napoleon's invasion. Uh, Advice to a Raven in Russia, which we, we've talked about actually on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast at, at least once. But I really like this move. I know you don't like it, and I, I want to hear why. Which is part of why I've chosen this. Though I was already going to choose it because I did think it was a beautiful bit of writing. But I really like this move for a number of reasons. Some of them I've already talked about. But it. Gives Gives us this sense of scale, right? The sense that the small cast of characters in this book, and, and even the whole human civilizations in this book are not the only people or creatures in this world, but then also in terms of storytelling, I, I, I think these interludes are these nice pauses in the action where Tregulus can get us to reflect on what is happening offstage and remind us that this is a story about death and destruction. I, I wish there had been more of these. I've I've said they have said that many times already, but finally, I think that this reinforces maybe even. Here in this passage, in particular, it plants the idea that although right now we think we're reading about human drama, there are other things out there, and hey, maybe humans aren't actually as important as they think they are. And you know, now that we've gone through the book, right, we know that eventually this is going to turn into a cosmic horror story about humans fighting demons, fighting these idolins, and this sets this up on the the very first page of this this trilogy in a way that we can't quite recognize until we've gone through the book. And so I thought that was very definitely done as well. But you did not like this, Brandon. And that is part of why I picked this passage, because I, I want you to talk about why you don't like doing this from the point of view of a raven.
1: Listen, don't don't think that because it's a literary illusion that's going to make me like it more. That's a it's a that's a weak trick, Glenn, <laughs> to, to try to pull here on me. Uh, even even if that is the case, but my issue is this: it is this singular issue here. The opening paragraph is gorgeous. You're right, "Murder on the Wind," and then it's not people killing each other; it's a flock of crows and ravens. Awesome imagery, often awesome shift of perspective here, giving us a real sense of what's going on. It is when he transitions from the setting into the point of view of the Ravens that I think that just took me immediately out of the text. So it's setting is a field that has gone to seed. Everything is crumbling. It's a ruin. And so the Ravens moved on. Fine. I think we're done with Ravens and then for years they had watched Armies. So now we're just shifting the perspective here. And to me, that just, it didn't work. It took me out of the, the story here. I was deeply concerned about the quality of this novel after experiencing <laughs> that. Um, and uh, I just don't think it's a great way to demonstrate, you know, the stakes beyond humanity. It's It's not that, this showing us the Raven's eye view or the bird's eye view, as we've said, which is a literal thing to me, that is not a good literal move to make anyway uh, in writing. So that is just a pure point of taste, which um, it's not worth arguing over. It's a taste problem for me. Um, so, I mean, like <laughs> people can have a totally different sense of it. And, and I think your argument for why it works is really strong. Um, To me, giving the point of view to inanimate creatures and then telling the story from their point of view in a story that deals so much with uh, the supernatural, the science fiction of human evil towards evil to say, hey, but these birds that are smart are benefiting undermines all of the other real trauma, difficulty, uh, struggle at work in the story. To me, it just it pulls the rug out from the some of the struggle that the other characters face. So those are my kind of core reasons. It's the point of view shift that I didn't like, uh, which is pure taste, but then kind of on a more critical level, I think saying that something else is benefiting a crow, a raven from this human suf- suffering and struggling and then giving us their point of view as they're flying from place to place and witnessing the war undermines the the real tragedy of that suffering. How many of the uh, top
0: 100 books that uh, you've ever read, Brandon, uh, feature animal protagonists, would you say?
1: Uh, well, 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 my favorite book of all time is a uh, children's book. Called It's a book called Mr. Dog uh, by Margaret <laughs> Weiss Brown. It's a golden book about Crispin's Crispian, the dog who belonged to himself. Uh, so, one. Okay, I There's thought it was going to be
0: zero for sure, but I actually quite <laughs> like books that are from the point of view of of animals. So I did wonder if that was really just what it was going to going to be uh that it was, you know, this matter of taste of of not 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 wanting to have a story about animals and perhaps fearing that in fact the whole book was going to be from the point of view of of birds or something like that at the start. But, you know, I love The, the Call of the Wild, for example. Also, I have I have a, a one year old, so I'm spending a lot of time uh, reading books uh, like called Ten Little Dinosaurs" or uh, books <laughs> from the point of view of a of a fox. I also spend a lot of time pretending to be Lucky the Lion these days. So maybe I was primed uh, primed for this more than I uh, than I usually would be. Well, we're getting we're getting towards the end of the episode here. Let's uh, move into our, I guess our, our second to last segment here, just wrapping up kind of the the plot here and if there are any unanswered questions that we have. Well, the question I have for you is really about the the world. Which is maybe no surprise that I have a world building question, and it is this, Brandon. <laughs> what do you think is happening in the Pacific in this world? Is the Pacific War happening? I mean, I guess we know it's going to be happening in a little bit because that war actually starts before the European War does with Japan invading China in the
1: 1930s. But does Pearl Harbor happen in this world, do you think? That is something I really thought about while I was reading this novel because the Pacific War is it, not even really thought of in like the same breath as the Holocaust and the, you know, the dreadful sieges of Stalingrad and Leningrad and, uh, the horrors of the Nazi regime. And then we don't really think of world war two in popular culture as being, Hey, like this was a major like imperial war of America versus Japan, uh, like the major thing. Like we got the Philippines and Guam, and like fought over all this land. And the war was horrible, and the Japanese did really, really terrible things, like on the level of the Nazis in terms of medical experimentation and um, just brutality to prisoners and things like that. We don't have those narratives about the Pacific War, and so I was wondering. One, of course, this this novel has to be about the Eastern front uh, on some level, but I don't know what was happening. I there's because they're so separate, like Japan's decision to invade world uh, Pearl Harbor, the U S getting into the war and fighting on both fronts um, seem to us to be really disconnected from uh, like Germany, Austria, Italy, joining forces and, you know, fighting um, They're, We don't really have the narrative glue in our popular history of World War II to tie all of these actions together on these different fronts that America fought. So I guess he just dropped it because it's not the focus here. And maybe it's just also easier to have the Eidolons put a cold fog and a winter winter in Europe which did play a role in the end of World War 2 rather than deal with changing the weather in the in the Pacific uh and the uh, Asiatic continent and and islands as well. But I'm not sure. It's just not even mentioned or brought up in this book at all.
0: No, right. But it's going to have to be in the second book, right? Which is going to have to take a bigger stage because we're going to be dealing with a a cold war. We're dealing with the the aftermath of the war with with the Soviet Union ascendant here. And one of the big things that is different is going to be different in the second book is the role of America in the world. Right. And so I guess really all Ultimately, the question I have is, does America come into the war at all? Because that's a different thing than America only fights the war in the Pacific. Uh, In fact, although the war in the Pacific was the bigger war for us, it's a 60-40 split in terms of material and personnel. uh, It's also longer right? The war in the Pacific is longer than the war in Europe. You're absolutely right that it just does not uh, occupy that space in our pop culture the way that the war in Europe does. There are lots of historical reasons for that. One of them is that Nazis are really fascinating villains, of course, but but the war in the Pacific would actually be very, very different if America is not involved at all in the war in Europe. If 100% of American resources can be put into the Pacific. And so I wonder what that would look like, but of course, what would be the, what's the, you know, and, and, and the impetus for Pearl Harbor happening isn't necessarily have to be gone simply because the war in Europe is, is, is over and, but of course, also the, the British are involved in the, the war in the Pacific, right? I mean, this is, you know, uh, the, the bridge over the River Kwai, right? It's one of the great war movies of all time about British soldiers in the, the Pacific theater. I mean, Australia, right? Part of the British Empire, New Zealand and other islands and so on at this point. India, right? Uh, so they're involved here too, but it just doesn't happen in this book. But I think the second book will have to address that. So this was kind of just a, a prediction question for when we uh, inevitably do go check out the second book.
1: We'll see what happens. Yeah, I have no idea because yeah, and you're right. If the second book is moving into the Cold War, I think we both know that that's the case. The Cold War in our popular culture mind is US versus Russia with all of these allies and proxies. So like it's a very different sense of what's going on. Like Britain is the American ally in the Cold War in the way that the US was Britain's ally in World War Two. So it's, it's just a it's a total shift in geopolitics uh, that, that I guess will have to be addressed.
0: Uh, let's move into our last segment now and uh, talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses. I always like to end on strengths. I like to end on a high note. So we'll do weaknesses first. And Brandon, I'll let you have first crack at this. What's the, the biggest weakness, I guess, that you've, you've found in this book?
1: All right, for for me, the core weakness of this novel doesn't actually appear until the novel second half, where I think Trigellus has realized that he's talked about how he's like he's told and shown only a little bit, but mostly told how bad the deals with the idolons have gotten, and this really makes the British seem unredeemable. They're enacting. Terrorist plots against their own citizens. They're corrupting children. Um, They're letting people commit suicide all over the place. It's 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 evil, right? You know, of course, only a small people know what's going on, so that's fine. A a deed done in darkness, so to speak, goes unknown. I I don't know, (laughs) but the collateral damage here is really evil, and and this is where the problem comes up. He's shown the British. Have been willing to do really awful things in order to win the war, but they're the good guys. So he feels he needs to remind us that the Germans are the actual bad guys. So he ups the ante on how evil von Westarp's plans are for making new superhumans, and then he doubles down on how evil Reinhardt is. And Reinhardt does some really taboo stuff that there's just no coming back from, ethically speaking. And to me, I just I just didn't need it. I think he should have kept the ambiguity as it was. And I think the end of the novel would have hit harder if he just let that ambiguity stand and say that there might not be redemption for these British characters or what they've started. Uh, because at the end of the novel, the tables have turned. The British want to make more warlocks, which is really a just-in-case scenario, I suppose. And the superhuman program will likely be continued by the Soviets. That's a big if here uh, because they have Klaus and Gretel. But otherwise, it's pretty much over. And I guess the distinction that I was left feeling between these two sides were is that the warlocks don't have to practice magic. They just think it's... The British maybe just think it's worth training kids in Enochian to have a a, a standing option, a, you know, to have this just-in-case scenario, and they're going to treat it like a nuclear option. But the biggest weakness then is that Tregellis gives us a, a weak moral equivalency argument while making sure we really knew who the bad guys were. And I'd probably just have him adjust some of that stuff if I were an editor of this novel, and just say we don't. You're already making this point that there's some real question marks with regards to the ethical actions both sides are taking, and, and so we don't need the reinforcement of the evil of the German side because you have one sympathetic German character. You need to balance it out with all these things. So to me, that was the weakness. The the need to overemphasize the evil of the Germans because he created an imbalance with how he had the British act uh, leading up to the second half of the novel. I think that's a
0: fair criticism. and and I think this this goes hand in hand with my crit- critique earlier of the the whitewashing of Nazism out of this book. I think you bring that back in, then you don't need Reinhardt to be evil to Klaus and Gretel, like to just be a bad friend just kind of the villainy that he has, that we, we don't need to have interpersonal conflict there. We can let Nazis be Nazis. I think that would actually then be the the, the sort of foil that we, we do want. Well, my, my critique here, my weakness, my biggest weakness is, is going the, the other way. And really, it's the emotional life of Marsh, which even though you read us this beautiful passage that's entirely about that, to me, this was actually a, a weakness of the book. I didn't think it was generally handled all that well. I never really cared about Liv. I I never cared about Agnes, even because we're not really shown them being together. We get as few scenes, as few beats in these relationships as possible, just to let us know that they exist. And really it's uh, this is an instance I think more of, uh, of telling rather than showing this could have worked if the book were a little bit longer if the f- first act and maybe the second act were a little more drawn out if we got more uh, time with Marsh at home with his family that might have worked better but because it felt more like lip service it, it didn't work for me it felt hollow actually and but not just them not just his family Stevenson here doesn't really come across as a father figure or even as you know just as someone who regards Marsh as his son. He's just his boss and a bad boss, even though we are told repeatedly that he is a father figure. We're shown not only just not shown that, we're kind of shown the exact opposite. We're shown that the relationship is not good. So that didn't work for me either. I mean, even the core relationship here, which is this friendship between Marsh and Will, that kind of only exists as backstory. We don't really see them caring for each other. We don't really see them caring about each other in the, the present tense action of of this book. We don't get them together. We're, we're given this backstory and then they're doing separate things, except when on occasion they have to do something together. But in those moments, that is so much about the plot that we never sit with their relationship. So I just never really bought it. So all of these emotional connections, these relationships for Marsh, I, I just they just weren't sold to me very well. And I actually then thought they dragged the story down that I actually would have just liked them to have been jettisoned, not Will as a character, but that backstory there and Marsh's family. I would have maybe preferred Marsh if he was just a James Bond character with no history, no identity, no backstory.
1: Yeah. Will and Marsh are no Frodo and Sam Weiss here, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Just not, they, they just don't have a brotherhood. Um, and you're absolutely right to point out that all of the emotional stuff taking place in this novel is sh- told rather than shown with the exception of Will's deterioration for about 5 pages at the end of the novel and it's it, it is an issue but it's also an adventure novel i mean these are stoic and rough men doing rough things and liking it, you know? (laughs) So, uh, even, even the end of the novel with kind of Raybould being restored to his family, uh, rings pretty hollow, especially when you know that, um, it's not going to end well. And, and I suppose what Tregellis is trying to do on some level is give us a, a tragic portrait of this character, because Raybould throughout this novel is more largely defined by his flaws than by his uh, strengths or nobilities. Uh, but it's not balanced. And I think that's a totally fair critique as well. All right. Well, what did you think was the best strength of this book? Well, I I think this book has an enormous number of strengths, but I will say what surprised me most while reading it was how invested Tregellis was in giving serious weight to both the magic system and the sci-fi system of the novel. I mean, he's setting this in World War II. And so certain things are not to be taken lightly. And he adds the appropriate weight to the speculative elements. Uh, you know, I, and I think he's trying to draw on analogs of the real war effort or the culture behind the war effort efforts. Uh, and it doesn't quite work, but also my characterization of what he's trying to do could be wrong. Like you might characterize the British as being a people who had the C.S. Lewis radio hour and faith and stuff behind them as they were fighting the Germans. You might characterize the Germans as doubling down on technological progress and innovation. And so that that kind of led maybe to the creation of these different systems of having magic on the British side or faith or something like that, strong belief and uh, Germans reliance on atheism and technological power or, or what have you. I, I was was genuinely impressed though with Tragelles's ability as i've said to give weight to these elements of the story that still made the war the war seem catastrophic and degrading to the humanity of all the people who participate participated in the more horrific aspects of it and I, and i think Tregellis chose how he wanted to represent the war and committed to it in a way that keeps a reader invested in that and, and and maybe not thinking so much about what's being left out as we've talked about. So it works the biggest strength of this novel is that it really, really works, which I will say I was skeptical of when I picked up the book.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I, we, we have totally downplayed the the Herculean task that Dragulus has in front of him to tell this story, because there are four speculative fiction elements at play here. The, one of them, the most mundane of them is simply that this is an alternate World War II, right? You, you could do that without any of the other elements. You could just retell that. You could have Dunkirk uh, become uh, a defeat r- rather than a heroic uh, a version of a catastrophe through some other means, right? One, you know, flip one other switch to change that outcome and then tell that story. He does that, right? So that's a, a speculative move that he's making here. Then he also has superpowers, mad scientists creating super. Powerful beings, superheroes, supervillains here. That's another thing. It's got those two going, and those are probably the two that were the easiest, perhaps, to blend together there. But then we also have wizards on the other side of that, which that seems almost like that should be kind of comical uh, in that in that mix that they don't belong in the same world. And then the wizards are really actually using Lovecraftian cosmic horror demons. And that that is going to have a price. So those are four distinct elements that are going on here that don't all necessarily belong in the same story, if you're going to tell it as a, a serious story, a realist story, rather than as, hey, check out this crazy mashup of genre elements I did, which you should never do in the context of the Second World War. Right. Which right. I think is also where the first Captain America went wrong. And that's the movie I think is is really bad. That's the Captain America movie I really dislike <laughs> is that first one, because it undermines everything that the Second World War was about. This book does not do that. I think it just doesn't maybe call as much attention to the elements that I want to make sure that we as a culture are not forgetting. but. Dragallus does an amazing job of balancing all of that and I can't believe that we've recorded for over 2 hours before actually calling attention to that because it is the <laughs> most amazing thing in this in this book. What a what a triumph.
1: It, it really is. Glenn, what do you think the the real strength of this novel was?
0: The thing that most impressed me about this book was the pacing of it, right? Dragallus is telling this big story with all of these elements has to introduce all of this world building, introduce us to several point of view characters and guide us through an entire war in what is really a pretty short book. And he can only do that by tightly controlling the narrative and uh, really being a master of pacing. Something that we've not said actually about the the narrative technique, the structure of this book is that the the chapters are all uh, cut scenes in which time has passed in between. Everything has a a, a place and a date at the head as like a, a heading that tells us where and when we are. Sometimes 20 years have passed, sometimes uh, several months have passed or weeks or days. And we always know that we don't get the stitching, right? We just get scene to scene to scene, uh, beat to beat to beat. But and, and all of it is is tight. All of it is quick. It just moves. And the, the prose, right? The wordsmithing works in such beautiful tandem With that structure, that you just turn pages on this. I mean, I think the amount of time that I spent reading this is like about the amount of time that you you would spend flying from the United States to Europe. Like you could read this on an air, you know, this is a great airport book. You'd buy this at the spinner rack on the airport, and you read it on the flight, and you stayed awake the whole time. Better than if you were trying to watch, you know, movies on the the tiny little screen on the seat in front of you. It's an amazingly paced, tightly focused, fast action oriented book that I just loved reading.
1: Yeah, I I think we can't underplay how difficult that is to do, and and it's it's almost sad that uh, so many of these really highly skilled technical writers uh, are you know I don't even know if Tregellis makes his primary wage uh, writing. But this is really, really hard stuff to do well. It's harder to sell and it's harder to make a living off of. And uh, I'm just (laughs) I'm glad that there are so many writers like this out there, even though uh, kind of the the dross is more readily available and more readily read. Uh, This was a real diamond in the rough on every level. And I am so glad that this was uh, recommended to us to read because I also loved it.
0: Yeah, I, I am too. And I, I really am eager to, to read more. I don't know when the... you know I'm look, looking at the recording schedule. I don't know when we have room for that, but uh, I would love to find a way to, to make room for that in the, the future to see how this story ends. If it goes the places that we've been speculating that it might, see how these character arcs wrap up, see how he continues to, to deal with these different speculative elements. I, I really would be interested in seeing how he tries to pull this off, how he tries to, to tie it all up at the end. But uh, we are at the end of this episode. So uh, that's going to do it for now. Brandon, I want to say thanks for coming on the show to do an extra episode with me this week. I just invoked the recording schedule, and this was uh, on top of what is already a fairly busy uh, recording schedule for us at the network. So thanks for taking the time to do that.
1: Well, thanks for having me on and making me read this book. I <laughs> <We> enjoyed it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com, including the two that I host with Brandon, which are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and uh, also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDormand, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own, you can contact us there on Twitter or find our email on the, the website. And I would love to be doing more commissioned episodes for a We've been doing quite a few already, but there are so many books to read, uh, and I would love an opportunity to read them all, really. Uh, all Every single book at some point is the, is the goal here, I think. <laughs> uh, but I will be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode on Descender Tin Stars by Jeff Lemire. Until then, I hope that you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.